0: Welcome, listeners, to today's show on Rising Above Shadows of Abuse, Razaar, where we talk about issues relating to abuse, mental health, culture, etc. I'm your host, Grace Opa. I am thrilled to introduce to you today Shamim Hussein from Muslim Women's Network. United Kingdom. Welcome Shimaine. Hi, thank you, Grace, for having me. It's lovely to be part of this. You're welcome. And let you introduce yourself and your position in the organization. Yeah, so uh, my name is Hussein, like Grace
1: said. Um I am the operations director here at Muslim Women's Network UK. Um prior, I've only been in this place for a year. Um prior to that I was the helpline manager five years so managing yeah all, all all things to do with helpline where women muslim women directly ring our service for help
0: oh that's fabulous so what roles or services does muslim women network uk play in the light of the service users
1: yeah so like i said so we're muslim women's network uk so we've been around just over 20 years Uh, And like I mentioned, MWN Helpline has been here for eight years and we've grown in that period. You know, we started off having the Helpline a couple of mornings run by volunteers. Now we are Monday to Friday and have two and a half staff per day plus volunteers. And it's a very busy service, but a really rewarding service as well. And we help Muslim women mainly, but anyone can ring. Our helpline for support. Uh, within that support, we, we can provide casework support, which is usually women who have uh, either cultural or language barriers uh, in accessing support for themselves. So that can range from accessing benefits to fleeing domestic abuse. We also have a in-house counselling service, so our counsellors are credited and you know really experienced in working with trauma. So Helpline is one of them. Another aspect is around outreach and advocacy, MWN Hub, which is an online platform. So advocacy, what we like to do is take the voice of Muslim women to the top tables and have those discussions. We want to know what they think about all the issues, not just social issues, but also policy related changes in the law. We want to be that representation of Muslim women as a result of that we launched last year a muslim women advisory group which is a cross-section of muslim women across the uk uh, with varying experiences backgrounds so from you know different ethnic ethnic backgrounds age you know social class experiences and different sectors and life experiences as well so we use that group to then also take that information, views, opinions, experiences, and, you know, inform policies, law, decision-making. We get the experience of women directly from helpline and do the same with that. But also, you know, if there are inquiries where there's a call out of participants uh, and so on, we would then take that back to our members as well. In terms of outreach, which was self-explanatory. If, you know, we go out and talk about the services we provide we link in with other local and um, national organizations and obviously with various projects we you know tap into the contacts that we have which are you know amazing well-established contacts so for example support england funded us to do a project uh, last year around muslim women and getting them more active so since covid obviously you know we were all in lockdown And we're trying to get people more active and actually one of the things we did is it's a really successful project is um, tapping into our contacts across England and uh, providing the support, the necessary skills, information and so on, training to then um, need on what groups. So that's an example of the things that we we do. And then finally, we launched our online platform called MWN Hub, Muslim Women Network Hub, which is a platform, a digital platform for Muslim women, by Muslim women, and anyone who works with Muslim women or wants to tap into that experience, knowledge and expertise. But it's not just issue-based. It can be, you know, role models, you know, people who are Muslim, women, professional various experiences in life different walks of life and it's profiling them saying you know what you know we've got a muslim woman who's an engineer we've got a muslim woman who works for amazon and facebook you know and and you can aspire to be them too but also in history so it's such a very good one. It, it is literally our members you know and anyone can join our membership so online you can join us i don't really have you just go onto our website and click join and register and then you'll get up to date with all things muslim women so yeah, it's really exciting. It's a different strand, and you know, it's been in place now for two, three years, and it's a really exciting part of the project. So yeah, that's you know, bulk of the work that we're doing. Yeah.
0: Okay, that sounds very interesting. The Muslim uh, Women Network seems to be diverse in the services they provide. That leads me to the next question. The Muslim Women Network works to improve social justice and equality for Muslim women and girls. What vulnerability and prejudice do do Muslim women and girls face? Yeah, so I
1: think, you know, one of the obvious, kind of thing is Muslim women, you know, somebody who visibly looks Muslim, so they may have a hijab on a baya or they cover the face with a garb. But I think it's just kind of saying that actually Muslims are so diverse in culture, in dress. It's not just the halal and haram kind of concept. It's we have a voice, we're not oppressed. Not all of us are. In any society, any community, there's always going to be pressure and different ways of controlling different people. In Muslim women's life, there is this narrative that they don't have a voice, um, they can't do this, they can't do that. But actually, we as an organisation, as a charity, um, it, it, we're a perfect example of what women can do. Um, and one of the ways we kind of tap into that is when we did a recruitment phase, um, I think it was before COVID, we uh, advertised for um, our helpline support worker, but we wanted women who have been out of work to feel supported and we provide, provide full training, knowledge, everything, to come back into the workplace to be uh, accommodating for them. So. We recruited women who had never worked, those that used to work or came out of a university, college or even school back then, and they had caring responsibilities. They got married and moved or other responsibilities that we rely on each other for support. So for example, if there's an elderly a family member or someone with disabilities, we look at Look within and support that person. So there are a lot of life experiences that can help them do this job because we have to be representative of the kind of the pool of women that contact us. So they're going to be from different age groups, different backgrounds, different part, uh, different um, school of thought within Islam as well. So it's just lots of different things and actually having the women who apply for that job, having them in the workplace here is amazing to see the journey they're on. But also, it's like asking someone, so what skills do you think you have to do the job? It's like one of the questions that you can ask. And it's kind of saying, actually, you are organized, you can manage finance because you've been doing that at home. So it's kind of the transferable skills and just having that kind of appeal for them to come in and understanding like that some people might still have responsibilities or will have in the future so it, we do that within our organization but we also then when we get calls from muslim women it can be from honor based violence domestic abuse to asking questions about their faith what does it say about fasting if you're not well all these things like they don't have anywhere to go where they can ask the question that they feel safe it's a safe space so women will be responding to them. Because usually you think like, it's Islam-related, they'd go to an imam, they'd go to a respected elder who's of knowledge, or within the family, if there's anybody. But actually for them to pick up the phone or email or text or whatever, to get that information directly, and you will give them information, knowledge, or with, with signposting if you don't have that. But it's such an amazing place to kind of, might be that's where the idea about the online platform came where actually yes obviously the helpline is going to be around where people want help i want to read a blog about identity from another muslim woman there's identity crisis when you're a teenager yeah and you talk about that in walks of life everywhere. Everyone talks about it. But actually, I want to see it from somebody who looks like me, who's come from the same community as me, who maybe even speaks the same languages as me, as the first, second, third language, whichever, who understands. I am aware that family, an extended family, is a big part of Muslim women, but also aware that that doesn't actually mean every Muslim woman would, would have that. Because... Yeah, obviously, we know of cases where there's domestic abuse and they've had to flee, where there's forced marriage unabased violence and women and they've had to flee and they don't have that support network, but they are from that community where it's there. It's making sure that we capture that information. So if somebody rings us say, I want to go back to work, but it's really hard, we understand what that means because we're from the same community. Or it could be that, actually, I want to carry on working when I get married. Am I allowed? It's like, well, of course, you can do what you want. You know, the world's your oyster kind of thing. But we know what they mean. They don't know what type of family or husband or whatever they're going into. But understanding it, it's an extra bonus. And the fact that we can provide that safe space. We do get calls from women who seek Islamic divorce yeah and they go to the sharia council the local ones at mosque and then they get asked why there's this marriage work not worked out and it could be domestic abuse it could be sexual abuse emotional financial there'll be things that are private personal information that they then put on the spot to respond and it's like well we talk about the and this typical kind of idea around at divorce um, so when women call us, they tell us that they're asking me questions and I'm I'm having to answer personal questions in front of men. And I'm just like actually that's not loud. Did you not have a chaperone? Was there not a woman volunteer who can listen? And we've had to contact mosques and say what what's going on? you know this isn't something firstly it's going to re-traumatize this person talking about domestic abuse and stuff but even divorce without domestic abuse is triggering right so it's about kind of informing them that actually maybe yes you have got this sharia law council but actually get some women volunteers or staff or whatever and have them all ask the woman to bring somebody in because there's been some really bad examples of where they don't allow anyone else besides the wife to be present. Uh, Or sometimes it's not empowering. You wouldn't want to tell the chap sitting opposite you about all the ins and outs of your marriages when it comes to intimacy that's a private forget talking about it with them Some don't talk about that with friends so it needs to be even more sensitive so we have been able to like chase them up and say right what you're doing <laughs> you know we don't this isn't in line with the ethos of empowering muslim women and actually if you do need to put somebody else there to try and support them and there's other things that we have issues with in terms of within islam in terms of the sharia council ultimately we have to, the land of the law takes precedence over sharia, sharia. But there are communities where the sharia law the council is like the end of everything us. but we have to inform the women that contact us what their rights are no. Okay. It's about when they're not registering their marriage. So we recently launched uh, a video uh, which tells Muslim women their rights in terms of um, Islamic nikah, which is an Islamic marriage. And okay. the fact that they're not actually legally supported in that, they, they're considered partners. It's not a marriage that's recognized, so they have to go and get civil people who are from lower social class poor educational background, but there can be people who are educated you know the system I know we had a lawyer once ring the news and saying i've just had a new garden do that we try to educate them say did you know that actually you're not financially secure it's your right to have a marriage that is recognized if things didn't work out and usually those conversations happen when it's at the time of a divorce or when there's an issue when things are fine You know, nobody worries about stuff like that so it's educating them, giving them information, I think one of the things that we do and we pride ourselves in doing this is giving knowledge and access to that knowledge and it can be something as simple as uh, uh, I'm fasting and I've got mental health issues, I'm supposed to be on medicine and I feel like a bad Muslim, can I fast? Islam, it says if your health is great and it's not just physical health, it can be mental health if it's not you're on medication, then you are. are There's other things that you can do to try and compensate for that. They would go to a mosque or an imam or uh, an elder in the family who may or may not have the right knowledge, especially when it comes to mental health. It yeah. might be that actually you're fine physically, so you have to do it, and then you're having to compromise your well being. So it can be Islamic related support and knowledge and advocating that they need. It could be the law in itself. We don't give legal advice, obviously, because we're not registered to do, but we can point them in the right direction. like citizen
0: advice, or if they need a solicitor who can speak the same language. It yeah. seems very great. So in essence, the network empowers and educates women about their rights, Yes. in terms of the law, in terms of the religion and social justice, so to speak. So do you also cater for women from other faiths? Of course, yeah. I mean,
1: other faiths, no faith, men as well, or anyone made part of the LGBT community, anyone basically can win. We won't turn anyone away. Obviously, we're a Muslim women's network, so the majority of our service users are Muslim women, around 94-5% who are Muslim and women. But anyone coming up, we have helped men as well who have been through domestic abuse at the hands of their wives. We've also helped people who speak, Hindu, English, Hindu, Christian, Jew, anyone. Yeah, so it's not specific in that respect, but as you can imagine, you know, there's a gap that Muslim women, we want it to be in our name. We want Muslim women to, you know, the majority of the way people find out about our helpline is they type in Muslim women help, and we are Muslim women's helpline. So yes, we we support anybody and everybody. Um, and where we can't, we signpost. Um, we've got various languages that we can offer on our helpline, including um Urdu, Punjabi, Mirpuri, like the typical kind of South Asian languages, Bangla, as well as Hindi, Gujarati. So we've got quite diverse. Even with our counsellors, so we've got Urdu, Punjabi, Mirpuri, Bangla, uh, English, obviously in that as well. So. Where we come not we use various translating services, or we find somebody, from, and Arabic, sorry, forgot to mention Arabic. Um, okay. And we do look at the stats, who contacts us. We look at the demographics and we make sure that we try and have a diverse group of women working on the helpline so we can cater for various needs. And it is amazing, you know, when somebody rings and they need somebody who speaks Punjabi, say for example. It's amazing okay. how we can say, yes, we can actually, we do have a Punjabi speaker and we're going to pass you on to that person. Obviously, it depends on the day and so on, There's the logistics and... and well so on. done. But yeah, thank you. Yeah, and we're trying our best to recruit more and more, but it depends on the client. So, for example, Arabic was one of the main kind of languages that we weren't able to provide. So we use a translating service. However, we've got an amazing Arabic speaker volunteer actually, who is now taking all those types of calls, which is brilliant for them because sometimes when you get a call and so you need an Arabic speaker, and then the person who's supporting that person doesn't speak Arabic, and they have an Arabic speaker to them, and it's just a whole whirlwind. But we've also had women um with disabilities, so we had somebody um, we had a sign language interpreter, as well as a uh, language interpreter. And they came into the office. It's rare we do that, but where we can accommodate, we will. It's amazing that we were able to provide that. And we want to do more. We always strive to do more and better and meet the needs of the communities that we we serve in the UK. Our office is based in Birmingham, but we yeah. support anyone in the UK. And anyone who has been abandoned abroad and they're a British citizen or has some sort of link, you know, we can support them or signpost them and support them by a different agency so yeah any anyone who wants
0: help we'll try our best okay it, it seems that your service is quite uh, varied and it's also within um, a wide geographical range as well from mm-hmm. what you've just said yes okay yeah so that leads me to my next question Islam states a Muslim man can marry up to four wives. Is that applicable in the UK? And why?
1: You know, that's such an interesting question because this is the... And I and I guess, you know, I mentioned the marriage video, Muslim marriage video that we've launched. It's called Muslim marriages in Britain, or your rights. And I guess if your marriage isn't registered, so it's not a legal civil marriage, it's a nikah, which is an Islamic marriage, then... Legally in this country, those two people are considered partners. They're not husband and wife because legally they're not husband and wife. So you can imagine that they can then have multiple relationships or Islamic marriages because technically they're not legal. That's one side of it. We don't get that many who have up to four wives simultaneously. It's usually end of one relationship start of another, or it. If anything, it'd be one other wife. Yeah. From my time in working on the helpline, that's never been the case. It's usually one or two. The second thing is there are lots of kind of examples on the helpline where women have contacted us and they are the second wife yeah. or they can be the first wife and they are telling us that they are the husband is threatening them for a second why if they don't do as they are told. So you can see how that is used to control, manipulate Muslim women. So one element of that is right, we want to get these marriages registered so they can at least have some protection. Secondly, although we talk about like four wives when you look into that, so there's a chapter in the Quran, uh, Surah Al-Nisa, where it talks about Muslim men and having four wives. So the idea of having up to four wives in Islam, it means that you provide them with equal uh, support. So if, if one has a house, the others have to have a house. If one gets 200 pounds, among the others should get that. They should give equally. And then if they've got offspring from that, again, saying they shouldn't differentiate. So firstly, that's the prior task. But Muslim men, when they embark on these relationships, have this many wives, they tend to omit that information. So there's a line that says that Muslim mar- men can have, two wives, But then the next line is only if they can provide to them equally. And then after that, is that, if they can't, then they should refrain. Also, we have to interpret the text, the Islamic text, in the context of today and the society that we live in. At the time of our Prophet peace be upon him, you know, women were being um, oppressed. They were um, widows. They were divorcees, and they didn't have any support. sorry. At that time women were being abused and one of the ways to protect them was obviously that society, but then women did have rights. Then it was allowed for men to marry two, four times to care for them, to offer them the house and security and protection. Things have changed quite dramatically and obviously we're not a Muslim uh, country. You know, we have the Sharia Council here, but we don't. It's not our legal kind of position in this country, and it's also about making sure that everyone is treated good, which is quite hard. Because I think you know, if you ask the Muslim man, maintaining one wife might be a bit of an issue. So if you've got multiple, the wives may need to um, get together and just kind of ask. But I think one of the things that one of the trends is, you know, if they marry somebody who then can't have children instead of divorcing them they'll marry so this is talking about islamic marriage they'll islamically marry the second wife and they are living under the same house and i i know a couple i think a couple of people in my not my generation but older where that's happened and usually you know back then it was a lot of cousin marriages so you know they didn't want to divorce them but they want children and so does the wife so actually then it works for them there are other people who you know would divorce one and then move on to the next if that's what they want to do <laughs> i'm not saying that that's what they have to do but yeah, yeah. so i guess it, it isn't applicable because it's against the law to have more than one wife but in terms of uk law uh, islamically it's been misinterpreted you know and actually if they do want to do that they, the, the men have to then apply all the stipulations to it not just what they choose and that's the thing with with what we find with Islam is that you know when it's around abuse oppression men pick and choose Mm. which part of the Islamic law they want to apply like the modesty isn't just so we have most women choose to cover their hair choose to wear long flowing amazing outfits like the better fashion trend than me you know but then you do find those where men after marriage want to control their wives and say, well, you need to cover a bit. But modesty isn't just a piece of clothing. It's in the eyes. And modesty doesn't just apply to women. Men need to lower their gaze too. You know, if men are noticing things, then well, actually, maybe the men need to practice a bit of modesty. Not just women. It shouldn't apply. But again, we can choose what we want to see. You know, there's a whole idea of the this is halal, this is haram. But it's like Islam is so much more than that. And it's so I find it personally, to me, I feel empowered by being a Muslim woman. I have so many rights that when I look at the religion, it's amazing. But what happens is we input our culture and the culture that oppresses women. And then suddenly the lines are blurred. What is culture? What is faith? And the answer to anything that they want to control is, well, Islam says so. So we do get women who contact the helpline and say, well, Islam tells me that I have to be patient. And this is a domestic abuse case where they've been married for years or not. You know, they're in a relationship or they are they're not in a relationship. It's parents abusing children. And it's about, I can't speak bad of my family. They're my mother, you know, there's heaven beneath the feet of my mother. There's patience is a virtue. They say in the Baranda, that patience is, must be exercised. But we then ask them, then the question that we always ask them is, okay, so tell me, do you think there's more patience required when you decide to leave that abuse? Hmm than staying in the abuse. Patience is then enduring all the backlash that you would get because it's a taboo issue. Even today, it is. But it's the bit where I'm just getting to think a different way. And there's the quote we take, paradise is uh, beneath the feet of our mothers. But there's also a line that says, speak the truth even if it's against your own. So if you are in there and you've been abused it's your religious moral right to remove yourself as well but that isn't mainstream that's not the way we've been brought up so it's just turning it and we just pose a question we plant that seed so i don't know you know in terms of domestic abuse it's around 37 different ins- uh, separate incidents that happen before a woman accesses the help or leaves that person so you can imagine when we're talking to muslim when there's an added element of the shame the dishonor or they married a cousin or it could be that the other siblings marriage to the other sibling of the partner and it could just be that they parents didn't agree to the marriage and they had to run away and get married and now they've made the bed they've got a line why should they Hmm. it's their right to have a happy marriage a loving marriage a caring marriage I think it's one of those things where it says, you know, hitting your spouse, hitting, it's allowed. And then we always talk about the key example that we always go to is our prophet, peace be upon him, Prophet Muhammad. If you look at the history of Islam, uh, the Hadith, there is no mention of him mistreating his, his wife, wives, his daughters, his female. People in in his community there's no so where do we why do we have that in our heads that it's because it's narrated by men and it's cultured in a way where they can then control us and be the way they want us to be but do you know what we have a voice and we need to use that voice and it doesn't need to be on a large platform it can be that little voice who's there and saying do you know what enough is enough and I think you find it, I'm pretty sure you probably know this anyway, but when the women have children, and we ask them, what do you see that future to be for your child? And I don't want it to be like this. But "Okay, So if it hasn't changed in six years, will it change in the next six? But sometimes it's about planting that seed, because they might contact us on incident one. But there was one caller who contacted us, Uh, She wants to marry off her daughters before she can then make a stand in terms of against her husband who, she suffered domestic abuse at home for like 20 over years. And she remember saying, my last daughter's married and I want to leave. I don't care about the money, the house, anything. I want to leave. I've endured enough. And we asked her the question, why now? And she said, because... I didn't want my daughter's potential in-laws to live from a broken family. Because hmm. that in itself is a taboo. I uh, was just like, about three months, But she left that day. You know, so we don't know when we meet that but We try our best. It might be our one opportunity
0: to save them. Okay. So, yeah. Thank you so much for that um, elaborate answer. So... so is muslim uh, marriage legally recognized in the uk or european countries you did say that it's not recognized mm-hmm. that it's a partnership so our property and financial and inheritance rights protected as regards the women folks so in terms of the
1: islamic marriage the nigar no in the sense that it's not legally recognized so if within the uh, uh, contract the marriage contract, the Islamic marriage contract, the stipulations. Then they can, if the other party doesn't fulfill those rights, then it's pretty tricky to get those needs met because it's not legally recognized. Okay. So the only other way of doing it is through a contract law. I think it's civil, but I'm not sure is that. But we don't find many people go down that route. But obviously, this is why we're saying you need to register your marriage legally, so get married, civil marriage, so then your financial inheritance right, everything is protected. But just touching on inheritance rights, there are stipulations within Islam about that, and money and property, but because Islamic marriage isn't recognised,
0: to exercise those rights can be difficult. Okay, thank you. So when Muslim women or girls are abused... How is this handled? Are clergymen, that is the imam, or senior female religious leaders involved in settling them?
1: Yeah, so that's, I guess it depends on each kind of community. So it may not be an imam. It may be the elder of the community, or it may be the elder of that. But um, I think what you find is where there's marriages that have happened that are cousins or not like somewhere in the family or a family that you're really close with, then if the marriage does break down, then elders do get able to try and see whether they can obviously we're talking about abuse. So where when it comes there are examples where women are told to just suffer in a way you're here now, you're married, this is your life. It's a bit like you you're going into this marriage and then the next time I want to see you It is on your deathbed like you're not leaving that marriage it's like this is it you've got to deal with it so then you get used to certain types of behaviors that may become oppressive over time or there's financial abuses sexual abuse there's physical it kind of all comes together but because you're in it it's like marriage is the life which ideally yes it is but people change you can if you aren't compatible that is a good enough reason to it's not as simple as not compatible, but it is a good enough reason to say, well, actually, this marriage isn't working because we've gone apart. But as you can imagine in any relationship, it's like you feel like you need a reason, and that reason needs to be a big reason. And obviously, where there's abuse in, in a marriage, it, it, it's logically a no brainer, like, of course, you shouldn't be subjected to abuse. But because, you know, that Control and getting used to that, be like, Oh, I I tell I tell him you know where I am all the time. And he's got access to my location settings, or um, I can only go out to do this, this, and this, and not this. You know, and that's just their way of life. But actually, that is control. But then when something happens, and it could be that the daughter's growing up, and then that is transferred over to the daughter. Yeah, it's a bit. You see it better from a, a different person's uh, point of view. But it can be handled within families, but unfortunately, we have seen cases of websites where women have been killed by their own family. And it usually is somebody that's known to the family or family member. That includes husbands, it includes adult children, uncles. There's so many that I can like of right now. Shafir Ahmed, she was a young girl who was murdered by her family because she was perceived as being westernised. There was, you know, she was married and she was pushed up from the up from her seat by her husband because she had a voice, because he didn't like the fact that she had opinions. Yeah, you know? and she could speak
0: she, up for herself. Yeah,
1: yeah and she, she was somebody who... Was aware of domestic abuse. So she actually volunteered for us back before my time. So she volunteered with her mum. So they were aware of everything, but it can happen to anyone. But when it's, you see all that and you think, well, actually, is that their way of handling it? Because it's clearly a crime It's abuse. It's not right. There are good examples. There are some imams, now, especially I think when I was born, up, the imams tend to be anyone who's, who knew the Quran and spoke a different language to me. You know and it was never somebody who i had access to but now there are many who are available to young people where they can talk to and get counsel from them and advice but they can bring us and then we can then signpost them or whatever that's needed but unfortunately muslim women and girls yes they are abused and that's why we are here where we are we are here to help them if anyone has anything that they want to talk about or they want help with or they need to get out of situation, you know. But not all cases of abuse are handled and that's where you find all the
0: you know, horrible kind of stories that we hear daily, really. Okay, thank you. And what is the experience of growing up in two different worlds simultaneously? The difficulties and benefits, if there is any. It's, it's
1: present, I can remember growing up thinking like, who am I? Am I Pakistani? Am I English? Am I a bit both? And you know what? I'm a British Pakistani. So we talk about the English culture, British culture, we talk about the Pakistani culture, say, in my example. And it was either or. It was either I'm this or that. At school, I was somebody, in, and at home, I had responsibilities, you know, the eldest of the siblings. And looking after the home, the family members, it uh, was a thing. It's not done me any harm, I'm here today. But actually, the thing that we forget is something that I, I would say, working here, has, uh, I've realised, that actually, I'm not either, I'm in the middle. And I think you will find the next few generations, there is this identity which we call the dual identity, which is what we are, really, because, you know, I've been to my parents' birthplace, which is Pakistan, and I'm considered a foreigner. There are people in this country who consider me a foreigner. I feel this is my home. It's a diverse place, but I mean, that's kind of one experience, but you can imagine where there's a, a clear, quite opposite poles where there's at home you're doing everything. You're not allowed to have a voice, you have to uh, cook and clean and stuff, and there's control but then you go to school but you go to school because you have to by law go to school right yes. so you're learning things you're feeling educated empowered you want knowledge then you want to go to college and then university or work in a, in an environment where there's men and women and I can see how that is not balancing that because actually they're not able to be anybody it's whatever the world of the people around them want to see um, and I think one of the you know Things that you find as well as when you have this identity crisis, it can lead to mental health issues, it can lead to self harm, maybe even suicide attempts. And it's really important that women, men, girls, boys, they have somewhere that they can find their identity needs being met. And if it means when when they ring us on the helpline or when they go onto our online platform, they're reading stories about other muslims and like oh actually yeah that's how i feel but then it's like i embrace it and i think there are lots of people who embrace it we're, we're moving towards I mean, we've got a long way to go but we're moving towards accepting that diversity i mean there's always going to be people who are going to be on the opposite ends of that conversation and how what is english what is british but for me it, it's everything oh, yeah and is it yeah. it's amazing to be part of that you know we're one of the few countries where that identity is like it's it's a spectrum and it's amazing and
0: hopefully we'll get
1: there
0: hopefully we will yeah. and that leads me to my next question how can social justice and equality be improved for women and girls I guess it's, it's a bit of everything that I've said really, isn't it? It's about empowering
1: through knowledge, accessing that knowledge. So it's not just like, oh, yes, you can read this book, but actually we need to make it accessible. Um, and where we get that information from, is it like from a particular news channel or is it a particular kind of the algorithms now on your phones? it's cut that self-fulfilling prophecy you everything confirms your own bias in a way because we are all biased at some point right so it's about just making sure that there's diversity in that experience and being willing to accept that and I think the more we kind of engage with our neighbours who are from different communities and learn about what our rights are and what we want our rights to be like it's okay to be yourself and it's through the education in the right education for those women and girls and knowing that there's always going to be opportunities to value your own experience and engage and people will listen and we want to be the platform where we can then disseminate all that information and gather that feedback we want to be the go-to place so women can feel like, actually, I want to ring Muslim Women's Helpline or get in contact with Muslim Women's Networks so I can like share my experience about this. So at the moment, we've got funded to do a project on organ donation. And, okay. uh, there's a shortage in Black and South Asian communities to donate. So we are gathering those views and we're trying to find out like how we can try and getting more people to so that we've got some amazing stories to, okay. to share eventually but yeah there's so many different exciting projects that we involve ourselves in, and we try and make sure that it's around empowering and championing women's rights it's fine women want to champion women we don't need to chat about them um, in a bad way we can say come on sister you can do this empower each other yes yes and support each women, other
0: empowering women yeah okay and that leads me to my final question in the nearest future, what are your goals for the Muslim Women's Network UK? And is there any words of encouragement? And furthermore, have you thought about championing women to go into parliament or to govern oh, the that's country? A good question. So, our CEO, Shaisa Gavir, who
1: is a baroness yes. for Hall Green she's an mbe she's at the house of Lords currently <laughs> yeah. so she spends three days there two days ceoing obviously it's not as strict but she is our direct link to parliament you know the amount of knowledge and experience she gives us and wow. empowers us with is absolutely amazing that's, that's that stuff but then it's also like she's representing people like me you know i'm a muslim i'm a woman so yes, we do want to um, give that. Like that, it's, politics isn't just um, white male environment. Like Muslim women can also be there. That whatever barriers there are, we want to combat them. We want to empower. So we 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 did a project around it, um, equal power. Um, and one of the things we're looking at trying to get women into Parliament. Whether they want to stand in the local community uh, or even understanding the political world out there, which is, um, yeah, there's a lot going on. Um, and it's understanding like little things can be like the terminology used, but it can also tell me what was your experience going there. So when Shasta does have a, a topic that she's going to speak on or ask questions on, she will... Come back to us and then the members and ask that question and we share all her like speeches, her questions. It's all on our website on YouTube as well, so people can look at that and be empowered. She's yeah, she's amazing. She's the driving force behind this, and the team that we have is is amazing women. Yeah, but my Fantastic. my final word of encouragement to women would be to let's break those barriers let's do it together and the way we're going to do it is by championing each other we'll push each other along and we will get there there's always going to be a long road but if we're on the right road it's the right direction thank
0: That's you great. so much Shamine. listeners you've heard what Charmaine said women we're supposed to support support each other championing each other and encourage each other so thank you so yes. much for uh, coming up on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. I hope your
1: listeners have found it useful. And I'll send you some contacts that you can add at the end if anybody
0: wants to get in touch. It's been brilliant. Thank you so much, Grace. You're welcome. So listeners, you've heard my amiable guest today, Shamin Hussein. Can you leave your comments on our social media handles, rising above shadows of abuse or our email address, rising above shadows of abuse at gmail.com. So on that note, thank you and see you on our next show. This has been your host, Grace Upper, for Raza. Be safe and be positive. Bye for now. Bye everyone.